DEI test with Eric and Brady. We've got uh, another fabulous guest today. Uh, we're going to talk about sports from a little bit different perspective with me as a photographer, Brady as a writer. Thanks for being here and enjoy the show. All right. Well, welcome back to the iTest. I'm Eric. This is Brady. We've got Rob Zadiska with us here today. We're going to talk talk some some Husker stuff and, uh, you know, like we usually do, try and get a little, we've been getting a little philosophical lately. Tangents. And I think tangents. That, yeah, lots yeah. of tangents, but we've been, we've been getting a little philosophical last, last, last episode. We even worked in some Friedrich Nietzsche. Yeah. And do it. So, it was. Oh. Wasn't planned, but no, it wasn't planned. It just <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, um, to start on that, um, let's start where we kind of left off on the last one. When, and when Brady, last time Brady and I were together, we talked about how I had noticed in the, in the practices I'd gone down to and Brady's been down to all of them so far. The first thing that struck me from the spring practices was it was very, very much a blue collar workmanlike atmosphere down there and attitude where like in, in recent years, um, in several years, it's felt very much to me like a more of a rah, rah, fake it till you make it kind of energy um, where they were, they were pushing the, the, the hype a little bit artificially and, when I'm down in Lincoln now, it's I, it, there's there's none of that. There's much less of the the pumped up music and 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 what are, I think is some of that fake stuff. But they're are they playing music during the practices? No, they play it during no. stretching. But that's it. Oh, okay. but it, but it's not you. Know, but even in previous years, which you you weren't here for, they had that music like really loud. Yeah, oh, and yeah. it was it, you could tell it was a central focus of what they were doing. Um. And it all, like I said, I'm, I'm, I, I'm usually very sensitive to the, to that thing when I, when I see or hear things, uh, who are you trying to convince me or yourself? And it always felt a little bit like they were trying to convince themselves they were, they were awesome. We're in Lincoln right now, when I'm down there, I'm very much feeling just, we don't care about any of that shit. Let's just do the work, just do the work. And there, I'm not hearing any a whole, I'm not hearing any false praise. It's a lot of work and a lot of I've noticed a lot more detail in the work. So what I wanted to ask you about was a little bit about that in your perspective on the the that that blue collar attitude of just doing the work, just do the work and it'll pay off in the long run. Well, and, and I think that, you know, I think that holds for anything in life. I do. So it, it's, you know, and I'm, I'm one of those people where I, I've got a pretty strong belief in positive attitude. And I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit of a rah-rah guy for the most part in, in that sense. Um, but I'm, I, I also love the concept of the grinder, the people who go out and it's just, I'm going to work, I'm going to work, I'm going to work, I'm going to work. And at some point, good things are going to happen. Now, you, you got to work smart. I mean, there's working hard, there's working hard and smart. Right. You, you've got to be intelligent. you got to have some direction with what you're doing with it. Um, but, but it seemed like, and I agree with what you're saying, when you watch that team perform, there wasn't that – substance that you were looking for and i think you saw that on the field there's there kind of two things that i i thought that were very much lacking in, in terms of what the the product that you saw on the field the last several years one was attention to detail and i think when, when you get into that i mean attention to detail and hard work are two things that almost always go hand in hand um, and when you don't have those two things, the byproduct on the field, it, it's the million and one little mistakes that'll doom you no matter how many good things you do. And you constantly saw the penalties, the turnovers, um, those special teams miscues are always a big one. Uh, you, you can tell what, what coaching staff believes in that blue collar attitude and believes in the attention to detail because those are coaching staffs who always take special teams and put them. I'm not saying special teams has to rule practice, but it's got to be up there with the offense and the defense as mm -hmm. well. Um, but when you saw those little things breaking down, 
um, the, the turnovers, the penalties, and the special teams miscues, those are things where you would always sit back and go like, okay, how are we losing to teams like Georgia Southern? How are you losing to a pretty darn mediocre Northwestern team? Um, or go last year, which, and I say last year, I'm referencing the, the 21 season, which on paper, statistically, was a great team. I mean, it was some of the the best offensive productivity we'd seen in years, which is actually kind of saying something because with some of the newer offensive styles we've seen, um, Callahan onward, there's been some pretty amazing offensive productivity. And this was one of the best offensive seasons we've ever seen. It's one of the better defensive seasons that they've had in a while and when you look at that, how well they're playing offensively, how well they're playing defensively, and they're losing to kind of some of these crappy teams like Illinois. And then they're, by, by I'm just throwing it out there, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but you're losing to a crappy team by three points. You're losing two very good teams like Michigan and Ohio State by 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 a single score. Right. And, and the question I always, people would always ask is like, how do you look like that? How do you lose to a bad team by three points and you lose to these amazing teams by three points? It just, it, that doesn't add up. It baffles and, and, the mind a little bit. Yeah. And the thing I'd, I would always tell people, it's like, that's the curse of those million and one little mistakes. That's the curse of not having discipline. It's that, that's what turnovers and penalties and uh, those special teams miscues will do to you as a team. You will lose to crappy teams by an incredibly narrow margin. You will lose to very good teams by this incredibly narrow margin if you don't have that work ethic and that attention to detail. Yeah, I've I've always I've talked always talked to my kids in, a, in athletics and life because I always tie the two together about those that, that game of inches. You know, when we had when we had Mitch on here earlier this year, we were talking about I mean the Indomitian Sioux he missed he missed tipping that that ball on yeah. that field goal i have the picture he missed it's it. scary how he close missed it by, yeah. like and just like and we were we were postulating that like another inch or two could have like changed the trajectory of nebraska football yeah right you win programs. you win that game yeah. and what what possibly happens after that you could have possibly changed the trajectory of the program but it's always those game of inches. I was, you know, I was listening to you talk about detail and in the last couple practices I was at, I, I kind of gravitated down towards, towards the linemen. Cause I think that's where this, the real athletes are. Yeah. Yeah. Let's be honest. Oh, don't get me started on this whole concept <laughs> of skill positions first. Right. Now that I'm a father of a, of a, of a, of a, of a guy in the trenches. Right. Now all of a sudden I'm bristling at this concept of the skill position guys. I'm like, whoa, yeah, let's have a conversation about that. But anyways, I was watching them and they were doing something that I hadn't seen before. Now, granted, maybe I hadn't noticed it, but, but they were, you know, they were working on hand placement, like literally the difference between here and here. Yeah. Grabbing, you know, the difference between grabbing him under the pads versus up in the armpit. And I don't ever remember seeing like going back, stopping and saying, no, 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 it's gotta be here and working on, and then doing that again and again and again, just that, that game of inches, when you're talking about your, your first step, you know, as it pertains to the alignment, right. You know, not here, but here. Well, right? it, and it's only like a couple inches difference, but that, that they were really harping on those couple inches. And it, and that does make a huge difference. I I mean I I think about with the, the the hand position, the shoulder pads, that that concept, and um, you know, it depends on the coach. It depends on some of the blocking styles they're teaching. I know some coaches are like, hey, I want your hands down here. Some are up here. Some are get them in the armpits. Some are keep everything vertical. Some are you know, get the palms up and lift up. There's there's some different coaching styles, and I'm not going to come out and say like, well, 
putting them here or here or here is the correct method. I mean, it, th- there are more than I was more than one way to skin a cat. But, well, here's the thing, though. You've got to teach something and you've got to maintain a consistency with it because if you don't, the end product on the field is going to lack that consistency then. And so if you're teaching guys, hey, here's where we want your hands. Here's exactly where we want your hands. And then you go out and practice that day in, day out. Well, guess what? When the players go out there on the field, their hand position is going to be consistent throughout the course of a game. And that's what's going to give you that success. I mean, and you talk about the foot position, 100% as well. And whatever whatever they're teaching, you've got to have that meticulousness in terms of that technique. The, the story I always tell about that is um, the Colorado game in 1992. So that was the Halloween night game. Colorado came in. They had both Coy Detmer and uh, consequently uh, Cordell Stewart and Cordell Stewart. One of the probably quick side tangent, probably one of at that game is probably in the top three of loudest I've ever heard. That yeah, stadium. it was, it that was one, insane. That, it was a, it was a great insane night. And sometimes a team comes out there in the zone and the other one's just not. From a pure talent standpoint, Colorado of that era was very much, I I kind of equate them to how Ohio State is now. It was just this constant run of NFL guys at all positions. Offense, defense, their punters. I mean, everybody. I mean, they, they just ran NFL guys through that program in that era, like you would not believe I, I would, I, I have told many people repeatedly hands down every year we played Colorado, they were by far and away the more talented team. Easy. We always beat them, but one of the, that, that game. So I was a redshirt sophomore that year. Um, and I was the swing offensive tackle. So I would, I would bounce back and forth between right and left tackle the whole game. Um, and so during the course of the game, I'm playing both spots and I had this great game. I mean, it was just this absolutely amazing game. I remember coming up to the line of scrimmage, recognizing this kind of this really odd, uh, uh, kind of overshift defense that they threw at us with the hope of stopping our an option play that and we came out in in a formation to run option and you could tell they were like okay we're going to throw this wildcat defense at them and see if that doesn't work against the option and i still remember recognizing it making a call to the guard to come over and block my guy i had to bounce out and block an additional guy I had to do this kind of reach block against them um, to free the option play up because you always wanted this end guy who they had yet another guy outside that that we needed to have free to be the option guy. Um, and I remember it was, it was it was a little bit of a higher level recognition for for a stupid sophomore to make. And I remember coming up, recognizing it, making the call, sprung the option, had a really nice play on the game. Um, Calvin Jones had the long touchdown run on the mm-hmm. counter sweep. I was the lead, that was the lead pulling tackle on that play. Um, knocked down Dion figures, their all American corner on the play. I mean, it was just, it was one of those games where everything went right for everybody. Monday rolls around after the game, we're still flying higher in a kite. And uh, so Milt Teneper and Dan Young, the O-line coaches, would always grade you. And they had a grading system where it was zero, one, and two. Two is the highest grade. If if zero was you either the you completely botched the block, technique was wrong. One was you made the block, but the technique was wrong, or the technique was right, but maybe your guy beat you. But you, you, you were kind of halfway there. The technique was right. Everything else you did right is just sometimes another guy, the other guy gets a paycheck too, and he beats you. Two was technique was correct. You effectively blocked the guy across from you. So in an average good grade, you'd walk in anything like 
185, 1.9 or higher for your average grade. 2.0 would be grading out perfect. I come in, I got like a 135 or something. I mean, <laughs> one five and less, you would always walk in and just be like, oh man, what did I screw up? Like 175 was like an average. Like, I did okay. It wasn't great, but I did okay. Came in, you saw that one nine or better. You're like, oh, hell yeah. I'm coming in thinking this was a 2.0 day for old Rob here. I come in, I got like this one three five, and I'm like, huh, the heck? And Tenaper and I were the only ones in the office in his office at the time. And he's, he kind of glances up and he, I, I didn't, I hadn't said anything. I just kind of had this, like, what the hell look on my face? Like, man, how did I grade so poorly? And Tenaper, I, I mean, I didn't say anything. And he just does this. Well, Rob, he saw the look on my right. face. He's like, well, Rob, he goes, he goes, you're the swing guy. He goes, you beat your guy every time. Because you blocked the hell out of whoever you were supposed to block every play you were in. He goes, just, you're the swing guy. And he goes, he goes, there was several plays at left tackle. You were stepping with right tackle footwork on the play. <laughs> he goes, or when you were at right tackle, there were several plays you were stepping with left tackle footwork on the play. But I was like, but I still pancaked the guy coach. <laughs> I put this dude on his back. He's like, I know, but the step, the step work was wrong. And then it, the light went on in my head. I was just like, Oh, I get it now. All right. Yeah. yeah fair enough. All right, coach. I got you. I see where you're coming from, but it, it's that mentality. You've got to have what you're talking about that hand position where they're insistent. No, it's got to be here and it's got to be right here every time. And if you practice that and you're meticulous about that and you're consistent about that, that's where you see it pay off on the field with the elimination of those mistakes and the turnovers and the penalties and things this like is, that. What comes to mind is discipline and detail. Yeah. hundred percent. Right? Like, it may like you, like you were saying there, there's several different techniques to teach but this is ours yeah, and we're going to do it this way. And that just the, the attention to detail and the discipline to, and get accountability to stick to those things we're teaching just from a mentality standpoint has got to pay off dividends. Just, just like I said, that we're, this is our expectations and we're going to do it this way. And that translates over into everything, whether it's showing up on time and, and giving max effort and practice and, and doing your films that right. All that, those all that the mentality of the whole thing is what fascinates me more than any individual, well, you know, cause you know, I, I coached my kids playing baseball for years and you know, there's several different ways to teach hitting a ball, but this is the way that I did it. This yeah. This is the way we're going to do it, you know? And, and, but that's all part of that mentality of, of of discipline and expectations and and i think matt's by all accounts so far is pretty darn good at holding them to holding them accountable for how how nebraska football is going to be going forward i mean yeah he he seems to be kind of out on the front foot about that i mean he's he's clearly been successful in throughout college you know had an unsuccessful nfl stint but you know i can i always throw that one out because i'm one of those there's NFL guys yeah. and I there's hope. college guys. And I it, almost see it as like, I um, almost see it as a, um, and I think I told you this when we were talking about it, the whole failure at the NFL, man, that almost slides into the plus column for me. It, it almost, it, it almost kind of does. I, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, that track record of college guys, classic guys who've kind of cut their teeth in college. And I, I know rule had a, he had a year with the Giants. I mean, he's got NFL chops. He's yeah. been there um, from a coaching standpoint. But some guys are college guys. Some guys are NFL guys. And, and it either translates or it doesn't. At the same time, I mean, you see some of these guys. I mean, take like Lovey Smith coming back to coming to coach Illinois. Yeah, they didn't go too well. It just doesn't I, – I mean, some of the – the NFL guys seem like they can recruit, but it's almost one of those – you sit in front of a kid and 
hey, when I was coaching so-and-so with the Bears, that carries weight with a recruit. Doesn't necessarily First, translate onto the field, I, though. I, I think that I, I have a feeling that, that that has a very, that kind of recruiting approach has a very short shelf life if it doesn't translate to a winning program. Well, right? no, and, and it's got to translate onto the field as well, too. And at the NFL level, man, it's, it, it's kind of an interesting coaching style that works there because you, you've got to be able to motivate a little bit. But at the end of the day, it's that there's kind of this kind of really incredibly narrow middle ground of motivating but letting professionals go out and do what they do best. And um, I got to think there's a lot less micromanaging. Of, yeah, of those kinds of things. And, and I will say this, that there are NFL coaches who do micromanage. Um, and man, they've got to be good at it. I mean, and it's really got to, they've really got to be able to click with the players and get and connect message wise with the players to get that to work just because it's the, the micromanaging thing do, doesn't work well at the NFL level. Again, there's guys who do it and do it well. Um, I, I mean, I, I think Bill Parcells was kind of a micromanager. I mean, um, but you have a track record yeah, of working. I think Belichick was, a, is a bit of a micromanager. Um, a bit. I've heard that he's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Tom Coughlin could be a hell of a micromanager. I mean, the guy's, Got to, I mean, these are Super Bowl winning coaches right. we're talking about here. So, I mean, there's guys who do it and it does work. Um, but it's, again, for the most part, I don't see the micromanagers working well at that level. It's letting pros go do what they do best. The other thing at the NFL level, and this is kind of true for all sports. I mean, you go to the NFL, the other thing I always found interesting was the emphasis on just pure fundamentals. I mean, if you watch NFL games, it's got some of the offenses have gotten more complex over the years, but for the most part, most NFL NFL teams run a fairly simple offense. They run a fairly simple defense. It's just incredible fundamentals that that they that they practice at that level and the, the players that make it to the nfl are players who are amazing at fundamentals so yeah yeah no and to me i look i go back to like what matt rules kind of said about developing his guys he's a big developmental guy wants to go back to nebraska's roots of being a developmental program i can't i think he was on he's on a show i was listening to the other day where he kind of talked about some of the guys he developed the um he talked about Jalen Petrie being the one guy at Baylor that stayed around, you know, when he took over and how, you know, the condition of that program was not in good shape when he arrived there. And oh my I'm, God. It was a disaster. That, that's still in my mind is an absolute miracle when he worked there. Absolutely. I, I, I that, that program me, could have, that program could be on levels of SMU. If, it was damn near a death penalty. If yeah. it's not, if that's not Matt Rule and he doesn't do that job with it. If it's it. not Matt Rule, it probably is an SM, another SMU. But the one guy who stayed, the one guy who was committed and stayed committed to Rule, Jalen Petrie, saw the field. They worked with him, and turns out he was one of the best, you know, what, the best safety in the NFL, borderline best safety in the NFL last year. He talked about, you know, working up Hassan Reddick, who walked on at Temple, mm-hmm. and then the previous coaching staff kind of ran him off the program, and then they he brought him back in worked him out, moved him around, and then turns out to be an incredible, you know, NFL player that Rule had at Carolina. And right. then in that last year, they just said, yeah, we can't keep him. Sorry, got to cut him. Can't, can't afford him. And like, those are the, <laughs> those are kind of the fun. kill you. Right. Like that's, especially somebody that you've got that relationship with and that right. bond with to work up. Um, but one thing I wanted to throw out there, cause I know it's something that um, you and I talk about, Eric is in, I go back to rules, big introduction on, of course, the, the elegance of him having his ceremony at the practice field versus the, the previous coach having him in the suite on the third floor of Memorial right. stadium. The symbolism there was not lost upon me. Um, but one of the things he's, he said, and it's become kind of apparent that it's still a running theme throughout spring ball is the trying to build Nebraska men and trying to build people that the university of Nebraska can be proud of 
and people that can be proud to go to Nebraska. And I mean, all of us are native Nebraskans. Um, I come from a little, a little bit different being, being a South central eight man guy rather than you guys, but it's, I think that that's still something that regardless of however the fluctuations in the last 25, 30 years of rural flight and, and the way that, you know, production and everything flies in Nebraska, that's still a very proud source. Oh, very much. I, you know, I, I remember talking to Osborne, Osborne said part of the reason he loved the walk on program so much was because he kind of had sort of this ballpark number in his head where he wanted roughly 60 to 70% of the team to be local guys. And when I say local guys, Nebraska, Iowa, the Dakotas, Kansas, Wyoming, Colorado kids wanted it guys from just right around here. Um, And he said the reason for that was because he said, if you walk into a locker room, and you're in Nebraska, or he said, if you're in any, st- if you're a school in any state, and he said, if 60 to 70% of that locker room are guys from that state, or at least from that area, he goes, the, the, re- the local or regional buy-in is huge. He goes, if, you, if you've got 60%, 70% of the teams from Nebraska, in terms of the total makeup of that locker room, you can bring in half a dozen guys from Florida, they're going to buy into Nebraska. You're going to bring in a bunch of guys from Texas. They're going to buy into Nebraska. You're going to bring the Peter brothers from New Jersey. They're going to buy into Nebraska. You're going to bring in the Abdul Muhammad's from California, and they're going to buy into Nebraska. Um, that And that's the thing that, that Osborne loved about it. And if you can get that local buy-in, but you got to have local guys to do it. That's and I'm not saying you got to have a team with 160 guys on it with just endless numbers of walk-ons. But if you've got a sizable number of kids from that state, it makes a huge difference in terms of the total buy-in to the local eth- I'm, ethics, ethos, whatever you want to call it, mindset. Right, the local mindset. So, yeah, I mean, everybody has that Nebraska mindset. I mean, kind of the the, the other story about that that always jumps in, in my head was right at the end of the Bill Callahan era, there was the Oklahoma State game. Right. Where they, what was it, Oklahoma State put up, what was it, like 35 in the first quarter? So it was just nuking nebraska and that was the game where fans just halftime they're like we're out of here we're gonna we're we're gonna let our feet do our talking for us so um there was a you know i'm trying to god it might have been mitch sherman i thought it was mitch or dirk god maybe it was eric olson i'm i'm i'm, I'm forgetting who it was well, here but around a little bit too it, it was but I, I remember it was it was one of the guys at the time who was with the and I thought with the World Herald, I thought it was one of those World Herald guys at the time, and they were uh, they were randomly grabbing some of the fans and just like, hey, what are your thoughts watching this play out? And he asked a random fan that question, and the response was outstanding. I thought because I mean when Callahan came in. The recruiting was amazing because he brought in John mm-hmm. Blake. Blake, I mean, it, it's kind of the old line about, I mean, Blake could sell snow to Eskimos. I mean, it was just his ability to recruit was mind-blowing. I knew guys who knew him when he was at Oklahoma and when he was uh, on Switzer's staff with the Dallas Cowboys. When they were gunning for a free agent with the Cowboys, they'd send Coach Blake after him. I mean, the guy could recruit. And – yeah, you had some, but there there was some absolutely amazing talent in Lincoln at that time. Uh, when Callahan was down there, the guy had an eye for talent, and he and his staff did an amazing job on getting a lot of that talent to Lincoln. The problem was is then both from a developmental standpoint, but also getting that buy-in to the program was almost non-existent. Right. And when the reporter asked the fan their thoughts on this. The fans' response was, 
we've got all of these recruits who are coming here to play at Nebraska, but nobody's here to play for Nebraska. And he, and then he said the fan just kept on walking. That's actually, you're right. That's actually like a perfect answer to the, to the question. Yeah. yeah, you, yeah. You've, you've got to have, have the guys that are playing for yeah. something bigger than themselves, which we've been touching on a lot lately too, which is, you know, I, you know, I get, I get questions from people about photography all the time. And, and we were touched on, on our last podcast about understanding your why, you know, why are you, why are you doing what you're doing? You know, and, and I'm a big believer in, in most things that that why can't be a selfish why. Yeah. If it's overly selfish, you're probably going to fail. Which but is, if you're doing it for something bigger outside of yourself, that's, I think that's, you know, from a personal standpoint, it's why I always gravitated towards team sports. And I think my son's the same way gravitates towards team sports over individual sports because there's that there's not camaraderie is overly simplified, but it take, you're, you're doing it for something you're greater. doing it for your, right. You're doing it for something greater than yourself yeah. for the team, for your buddy, right? You're accountable. When you go to the weight room every day, you're accountable to your buddy. And if your buddy's got to be accountable to you um, on those, because if, if you're doing it for selfish reasons on those days that you really just don't want it. And we all have those days. If you're, if, if you're not accountable to something bigger, it's really easy to talk yourself out of it. Yeah, I don't, I don't need to run today. Right? I'm the, o- I'm the only one I'm hurting here. Right. If you're, and if so, you don't have that, team but, if, but if you're accountable to, you know, to coach and your teammates and, and, and the program and the state and in terms of Nebraska, I don't know how you sit on your butt in your, in your hotel or not your, in your, in your dorm room or your, your apartment and not get over to that weight room because holy crap there's a lot of people Which, counting on me being able to do my job and that was you know that was a dynamic that was at the time i was down in lincoln was incredibly strong i mean it, and and i say that at least i know it was for the offensive line and the defensive line because those were the guys that that we always hung out with together and, and i remember there was a period of time where we were doing extra weightlifting workouts. Hopefully Bo- Boyd Apley's not listening to this. He'll be pissed if <laughs> he did this. But we, we would we would kind of do our weightlifting workout at the stadium. And then the entire offensive line and the, we'd go eat dinner. Everybody would go home, study for a couple hours, and then like eight o'clock at night, the offensive line would go to the university rec center. And we would do our real workout. And the defensive line, they always went to, it was the North Lincoln Gold's gym yeah. up there by the kind of halfway between, halfway between Nebraska Wesleyan and Lincoln mm-hmm. Northeast. What was it up off Layton, I think, and Lincoln. Um, but the D-line, when the whole D-line, Perella and Kevin Remakers and those guys grabbed everybody and they'd head up to the Gold's gym. And then all of us on the offensive line would go meet at the university rec center. We had a little separation because honestly, we'd ru- we would have run out of weights. We had too many guys in there at once. If I would be surprised we did it together, if, but I'd be surprised if boy, if one of those things like we were talking about earlier, where he didn't know, but he just maybe turned a blind eye to it just a little bit. Come on. I, over for the, over the course of four years, I would think, yeah, that would probably, think he well, would've, he would have found out. We, well, and honestly he did. And he, he hated the idea of it. I think any coach does hate that, whether it's, I don't care if you're a tennis coach, a basketball coach, a yeah. swim coach. If all of a sudden you find out your guys are like leaving, leaving your domain to go someplace else to not do your program. Right. And what ended up happening is we, we ended up, I remember a group of us kind of, boy, we were butting heads with Boyd and Boyd finally was like, all right, what is the program you guys want to do? And we told him, okay, here, here it is. We want to do this, 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 and this. And here, here's how we're going to implement it. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's where, here's how we're going to, here's our measuring stick, so on and so forth. So we laid it all out for him. 
we had reasons why we wanted to do it that way. We had the, some of the science behind it, all of that. This is what you get when you get a couple of biology majors involved <laughs> with this stuff. Um, I would and, think it would be the best way to get, through, so, to get through to Boyd, too. Well, and, and, he was, and he was like, all right, let's do it. You, you guys, and, and he even selected, he was like, all right, you guys on the O-line, you guys on the D-line, I'm going to let you do it because it's, he goes, I have a hard time arguing with the fact because he goes, I'm looking at like myself and Stye and John Perell and these right. guys who are just freaks and natures in the weight room. And he was like, all right, I can't argue with the results that you guys have already had. You guys can do it. And so, and the, the only goofy thing with the program was, is that it was this, it didn't sync with the days of the week because we would do this routine where we'd work, we'd lift for three days, take one day off, lift for three days, take two days off yet repeat. Well, that's a nine day cycle, right? Well, there's and seven he was days trying to have week, it on a seven day. And cycle. he's trying to keep everything on a five day cycle on Monday through Friday. And so he actually, he or one of his assistants would meet us. If, if one of our days lifting fell on a Saturday or Sunday, they would meet us at 6 a.m. At, at the stadium weight room and unlock it for us to go in and work out. And we'd go into our workout, and by 8 o'clock, we were back out of there again. There you go. But they, he actually let us do our own program for basically about our sophomore year onward. So, But it was one of those. It's, but, it, but it's that dedication where you're sitting there and going like, Hey, you've got a group of guys that are literally saying to the coach, hey, we can work harder and we can work better and we can improve more and we want to do that. Give, give us the opportunity to do that. And I will say the coaching staff at the time was like, and hey, here's some people thinking outside the box willing to do more than what we're giving them. Right. People like that, you got to let them go do what they're I was going to say. Do, anybody so. that wants to do more, you got to kind of yeah. let them, as long as they're doing it correctly, right? And they're not hurting themselves. You kind of got to let them go. Yeah. There's yeah. a there's a lot of similarities there, though. I think of just the people I've talked to, you know, since the new rule staff and everything came over the the cycle and everything. The Corey Campbell strength and conditioning staff they do the the three-day regeneration day and then another three or four days, depending on your lifting program, and then a regeneration day where those regen days are a lot less strenuous with actual lifting, They actually, but they're more focused on mobility and stretching to relieve you know, muscle tension and everything like that. Um, I'll, I'll defer a lot of the medical um, advice <laughs> <Yeah>. to you. <laughs> well, and that's one of those things. I, I mean, truth be told, I, I wasn't down there. I got a day job, so I'm, <laughs> I wasn't down there much to see workouts or practices, et cetera, over, truth be told, ever. And so it's, I don't have a good feel for it. And so it's always interesting to me to see how it works out. And I mean, and I think people worked hard and did some solid things uh, when Polini was down there. Um, with Mike Riley, I heard, there was dust in the weight room on half the weights and the guys just didn't work out that much was kind of the word that got communicated to me. Um, uh, when Zach came in with, with Scott, it, it was, that was kind of an interesting thing to me because Zach was actually one of the assistant strength coaches after I was down there and he had a really good track record. Um, I, I don't think you saw some of the, the development of the players. I mean, it was kind of one of these things when I looked at Zach and I looked at his staff and I looked at what appeared to be going on in the weight room. I, you didn't, it seemed like they were doing all the right things there, but you didn't see it translate onto the field. I'd like to think when I was down there late 80s, early throughout the 1990s into the very early 2000s, you saw this translation onto the field through the strength, through the strength program. And I didn't see that in the time when Scott was down there. Now 
that may not be a strength and conditioning thing. That might've just been, maybe it's a motivation thing. Maybe it's a recruiting thing. Maybe it's a, how the coaches are implementing well, their you guys actual. Were, you guys back in the nineties were way ahead on the, on the, mo, on the mobility and functional strength and a, side yeah. of things. Like, like I, I've heard countless stories about, about the, the drills and things you guys would do as offensive linemen that nobody else was doing to work on hip mobility, like all the things yeah. that, all the things that, that are commonplace now. Right. I mean, well, why it's out with Steve, they, I mean, everything is centered around mobility and functional strength. Well, and I, I look at, I, I look at that whole science in general now, and it's mind blowing to me because I sit around and think about the fact that when I was in high school, it drove me nuts that I was one of maybe five guys in the entire high school that worked out and trained consistently year round. And you had guys, I mean, you had a lot of guys. I mean, myself too, I played more. I played more than one sport in high school. But I mean, you had guys who just really didn't lift weights. That was, it just, nobody did. It was, well, and man, it makes me sore and (laughs) takes time and uh, standard, standard, yeah, standard high school excuses. But I mean, when I was in high school, I was one of like five guys in the, whole football team that lifted weights consistently. Now you look at those five guys, they all went and played college sports somewhere. I mean, there's a couple of basketball players, two or three football players. Um, and so it, it, that that's one of those dynamics that was interesting to me at the time. And then you fast forward to now where, I mean, everybody's doing it. And I say not everybody, but I mean, it's, I would probably say probably 70, most, yeah, probably 75, 85% of most high school sports teams are doing some can fairly consistently doing some kind of training program. And then you've seen the rise of stuff with, I mean, all the stuff that you see here in town uh, with Steve, with Warren Academy and every, everything that he's done. And there's a number of other groups in town that have started these, these training centers. They work. I, I mean, I, when, when it comes to, if you've got a parent who has a kid and I always say, it's like, you can't do the living vicariously through, through your kid, but if your kid wants to get better, I'm not saying be a great athlete, but if they want to get better, man, there are some amazing opportunities now that we didn't have. Oh, geez, we didn't have any of that. Yeah, stuff. at the time, I mean, I'm sitting around, and at the same time, too, part of me is sitting around here and thinking, would I have been as good as I was then? Because <laughs> relatively, relative yeah, to everybody else, because like the bar, well, the overall bar would have been raised. Yeah, when I, I mean, I mentioned when I graduated high school, I was six four, six five. I was about 295 and I, I did not have body fat. I mean, I, I looked like a pro wrestler. I'm just, I, I don't look like that. No baggy shirts, baggy shirts are our <laughs> baggy, friends, yes, dad yes. bod. Um, but I mean, at the time, I mean, I was 295 with a washboard, right? Because I lived in the weight room. I lived on the track. I was running stadium stairs. I was, I had this whole jump rope routine, jump roped all the time footwork balance quickness mm-hmm. um we'd go out play racquetball all the time i mean it was just it, all this stuff and i'm now i'm sitting here going like everybody does this everybody. now you're right i look at the kids posting these weightlifting videos and i'm like damn these are high school kids that's what i was squatting as a sophomore in college and i was a freak in college i've told i've told you a little oh. bit about my own son about i mean where oh. where he's at as a freshman was like that's where i was at as a junior yeah and he was doing it going into his freshman i'm like jeez yeah it's but, a, but, but, it, but it's not just you know it's not just the that they're getting in the weight room i mean you know we talk about steve because that's what i have the most experience with like early on when when my kid was out there they weren't just like piling weight on the bar and doing back squats. I mean, it was, he was, White was there for like a year before they even did a back squat, but they were all on proper form and everything was centered around mobility and functional strength. 
Yeah, and that's right? and I will say that has been the functional strength thing. We I don't know when well we were when I was in high school and nobody talking about functional no, strength. No, it was it was, it was bench, squat, bench, squat. deadlift. Maybe if, if you, you wanted to get a little crazy, dumbbell bench press. Dumbbell. I was getting nuts. We did. We did. We did. <laughs> I remember doing incline dumbbell bench presses, and the those of us that ran the ball, we we did um, leg extensions and curls, and then we had this yeah. other machine that would mimic the the running motion to work on your glutes and your hamstrings. But other favorite. than that, that was pretty much yeah it. it was pretty basic that was pretty stuff basic and stuff and you did you know but you know and i will say when i hit the door down in lincoln there was a there was a shift there and i was like one of those i i want to do more squats and bench press like no we're gonna we're gonna do the cleans the snatches the clean right. and jerks we're gonna do the multi-motion olympic that was, lifts a, that was about and, the time that the jammers started and the jammers the so the jammers hit the door when i was down there and when I was in school, there's sometime nine, sometime between I'll say between ninety and ninety-four, the jammers yeah. hit the door, and it was all about hip rotation, hip explosion, um, ex- sort of that ground, the ground base translating explosion from the ground on up. Right. Um, that hit the door down there at that time, and that was, and it was interesting too, looking at the. Uh, sort of the the cooperation between different schools because i know unl the strength coach is there one of the programs that was again kind of on a lot of the cutting edge research was penn state at the time and so boyd and his staff and i gotta be honest i don't know who the penn state strength coach was at the time but i mean those guys were those guys were on the phone constantly and then, I mean, research was going back and forth. And I, I remember Penn State would come up with something. We'd give it a try. Boyd would come up with something. They'd give it a try. It, I mean, there was a lot of that going on at the time where you were coming up with a lot of that, the functional strength mindset. And that was something they, I mean, before it was, well, let's, we're going to try and squat small livestock and we're going to try and bench press small automobiles and if you can do that you're good to go that was all you worry yeah. about so i it, it was an interesting dynamic when you saw that shift because for some of us who are like the old school powerlifting guys we're gonna get a huge bench a huge squat and huge deadlift yep and we're the three we're gonna we're gonna drink protein shakes until we vomit yeah <laughs> or take big horse yeah. pills of amino acids and things like oh, that. Oh man! I tell my kids the about Joe that. Weider supplements. Yep. Yeah, I was oh. the the Joe Weeder, the just like amino acid, like you know. I still remember those big, huge pills I would well, swallow every day. They were always kind of yellow. They made you belch yellow. Yeah, I mean your they breath, your breath was yellow. I don't know. So here's how big a nerd I was for this stuff. So my dad worked for UNL. He was director of housing. Um down there for well from 77 to i think 20 so 34 years um and um taught a few classes in his time down there anyway so he had some great connections so i had he had a buddy who was in in the food food science department so a couple of nutritionists that he knew so i had him picking the brains of some of the nutritionists about, Hey, I want to make the perfect protein shake. How do I go about doing this? And I, I remember they were talking about, listen, you need these raw unprocessed proteins yep. and probably your two best sources are actually just plain Jane skim milk and egg whites. And I remember I was doing, it was these Rocky Balboa ones. And then he was like, yeah, he goes, if you're buying a protein shake mix, he goes, you're, you're wasting your money because it's so heavily processed. You're not absorbing half of it. And so I, I remember he, he was basically like, use skim milk, use egg whites, flavor it with something. And what I ended up finding was actually, remember Ovaltine? Oh, yes. <laughs> they yep. still make it. Little Ralphie, he's drinking his Ovaltine, going to get yep. his decoder ring. Um I, uh, I I bought sugar-free Ovaltine. I think Super Saver or IGA carried it in Lincoln. 
So I'd get, I'd get sugar-free chocolate Ovaltine tasted just like Nestle quick. Huh. And it, and it actually had Good about, and each, each dose had about a, your every two scoops had the equivalent of about a multivitamins worth of, well, multivitamin in it. So, but it was no protein. All that came from the milk and I'd, I'd do like four egg whites and fill right. the blender with skim milk and do about two of those a day in addition <laughs> to everything I was eating. But Wonderful. So. It actually it tasted pretty good. I'm, I'm probably lucky I never caught salmonella from it. <laughs> True. Most of the eggs are partially pasteurized anyway, so I think I was pretty safe. Yeah, you're but. probably all right. That's not my expertise. I was a uh, meat judging on the meat judging team in Lawrence Nelson FFA. Nice. So. <laughs> nice. Oh, I ate plenty of that, too. So. Yeah, there, was a, there was a fair amount of that. You can only, I was going to say, when you're, my mom was trying to feed three boys and all of us were big, all of us ate everything. Oh, man, I was listening a few years ago, a couple years ago, we did, uh, I think it was Aaron that did a story on the Farniok boys. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, what yeah. it was like to, and I, I remember um, <laughs> asking, like, ask her, how did you feed these two boys in because they were like a year apart or something right yeah yeah, yeah. like well, so there was multi there was like four but yeah like because you had I, the I, iowa I, state farniak then you had the oklahoma farniak right. and then you had the nebraska and then she was but she would talk about her trips to costco right and it was like you know gallons of milk and you know and the cheap you know the pro the amount of protein and you know here i am complaining about the one kid still at home you know the, the the offensive defensive lineman who just like you know eats and i'm like God, you know buying protein in bulk at costco and you know big, yeah, big up vacuum seal packs of chicken that we go through in like three days kind of thing yeah, i my, can't imagine feeding those and yeah, my mom bought i think she there was a good rich in lincoln and she would buy directly from good rich for milk eggs there was a uh friend of a friend of a friend deal had a farmer who would sell her eggs directly and so we'd get eggs by the pallet but like yeah like like how much room in the fridge did the eggs take up and how much like you needed two deep freezes well the pallet was i mean the the pallet of eggs i remember the the farmer would drop it off and the way she did it was about the squares this table here i mean it was an actual pallet of eggs (laughs) um and my mom because she would get them direct from this farmer. I mean, it was pennies. So she would then sell like whatever the pallet cost. She would sell that many of the worth of it to the neighbors and then keep half a pallet for us. So we were actually only going through like half a pallet a week. Only but. half a pallet. So, but we would do that and then, yeah, then. Well, that was a lot of, that was a lot of pork chops over the years. So. And I, I can't remember who I was talking with, but you know, we'd go back for like Easter or holiday or something back to South central Nebraska. And, you know, you just get to talking with people from, you know, from Lawrence Nelson or from blue Hill Shickley every once in a while. And you, you know, we're all small town people. We're all, you know, some of us are actually grew up on the farm. Some of us grew up around it. And, you know, everybody wants to talk about Husker football and like the, the farm bread, you know, like the go out and get those farm raised kids. And I've like, I, I don't want to say that they're not there entirely, but it is an entirely different animal now from then Devaney getting in his car and driving, you know, 40 minutes outside of Lincoln, because just like the innovations of modern farming and raising is just not what it was well, 40 I think some it, years ago. To it also like, touches on that. Oh what we were talking about with the, the kids nowadays getting better training younger. Like yeah. you used to go get the farm boys because not only were they the right size that you wanted and they were strong, but they had functional strength. Like, you know, you go yeah. throw hay, hay bales around for an afternoon. That's functional strength with leverage and right. So they came to the football field understanding innately functional strength. Yeah. Right. And nowadays, like you said, the, the changes in, in farming technique and, and mechanization combined with, you know, the city boys getting better functional strength training at earlier ages. I think that's kind of 
kind of evened out a little bit. Yeah, it is. But I mean, I think they, gotta, but I think those farm boys probably also bring a work ethic yeah, that sure. could really serve the LA kids well. But I mean, at the same time too, I mean, and some of it goes back to what we were talking about. You, you want that local yep. mentality where you're playing for Nebraska. So you've got to have the guys who do that. And that you've got to go statewide to get that. You're seeing the other thing that's been really, really interesting for me has been seen over time, the development of, I mean, it started in Omaha where you had, or Lincoln maybe where you had like the Warren Academy or Explosive Edge, but you're seeing people who have kind of bought in and that's going statewide now, especially say like seven on seven, for instance. And so you're seeing all of the, a lot of these guys from smaller towns they're doing seven on seven leagues. Now they're doing travel leagues. Now they got a hell of a lot more driving to do than the guys here in Omaha, but you're seeing more of that. You're seeing more of the training and it's cross it's across multiple sports too. I mean, one of the things that kind of surprised me was when, so I, I, two of our three kids are wrestlers. And so, and those two were, and are very good wrestlers did some club wrestling and you look around Omaha and Lincoln and man, there are some very well developed club wrestling programs. Yep. But then it's one of those things. Then you go to, you go to the big Nebraska AAU wrestling meets the USA wrestling meets. Um, and here comes O'Neill with leprechaun wrestling club. I mean, here comes Lexington with Minuteman wrestlers. I mean, it's it's one of these like, dude. Everybody's got a has everybody. Everybody's got it. Yeah, Yeah. it's so the high school farm program. Yeah, you've you've got to do it. You've got to do it in all sports if you're going to have any success at all. And so that was something that I thought was has been cool for me to see is the development of within the club sports. And I'm not saying you got to play the same sport year round. And most of these kids are playing They're They're playing everything, but everybody's got a favorite sport that they do at least a little bit year round. Football is your thing. And and you're in Garing, you're getting together with the guys from Scott's bluff and you're doing seven on seven. I mean, if, I, I mean, you're, I mean, if you're up by Wayne Pierce, Norfolk, Stanton, those get those folks are all getting together and doing seven on seven. I mean, it's you're going to figure out a way to make it work. Um, so it's it's you're seeing more of that development. That again, it's just it's interesting to me that dynamic because you didn't see that when we were growing. No, up. when we were growing up, the only the only place you saw that was in baseball. Yeah, right with the travel teams and with. You know, here in Omaha, there were like, when we were growing up in Omaha, there were like three travel teams. And now there's a billion. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, the the idea, you know, my son played for, it was Westgate, Westside Athletic Association Baseball. Very good. I call it, it's it's kind of a nice middle of the road competitive level, kind of comparable to like UBA, B teams or it's on the, it's, that's where my, that's where my second boy plates so. it's little league yep it's little league so we i mean we'd always play we'd go play carter lake little league we'd go down play ralston little league we'd go play papio little league we yep. but the, the thing that was interesting to me there is we'd go up and uh you'd go play blair little league bennington you'd go uh over into iowa hit a lot of the go down yep. play glenwood little league I mean, the idea of doing that when I was a kid, it was one of those like, well, well I mean, we're not playing like on we field. we might go hit Waverly, but that I mean, man, that's that's a whole nother town. <laughs> the concept of that as a kid doing right. that now. But yeah, now it's one of those things, even in Omaha, Omaha, the, the teams are hitting the road. You're looking for competition at all different levels. Yep. Yeah. Well, and to put a bow on it, like I go back to Carter Nelson, the kid for, you know, kid from Ainsworth, who I remember talking with him and his head coach back in October before Penn State, Notre Dame, and his, you know, recruitment really started to take off. And 
I was like, Hey, I'm an eight man guy. Your defensive coordinator went to my high school. Like I get it. And I kind of asked him like, were y'all all worried about that? You know, being an eight man football player at standout, he's like, he thought about it, but then they went to a couple camps in the summer where, you know, he became MVP of one camp where it got around. And then next thing you know, you know, uh, Nick Saban's watching eight man Nebraska <laughs> tape because right. you've got a kid who's incredibly athletic and can move around on an eight man field. So he knows conditioning, knows how to move around explosive can dunk and he high jumps seven foot in track. Like that kid's a freak, by the yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. And I say that as a compliment. Yeah, I mean, that's the most compliment. Of yeah. Freak you can you tell any athlete they're a freak. That, that, yeah. That, that's, that's high praise right there. Yeah. So, all right. Well, you know? I guess we'll go ahead and wrap that up here. Yeah. So we, otherwise we could, I personally could keep talking forever. So, but I, <laughs> he can, but I, yeah, so, I never shut up. You ask anybody in my family. that. So we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap that wrap up this edition of the eye test with Brady. And thanks for Rob for coming in. Uh, hit that subscribe button notifications and uh, we'll see you around next time. Heard at Sports Network Production.